So yesterday, Pastor L said, I can't preach tomorrow, and the first person I thought of was uh, Gord. Uh, Gord Allert is from Prairie Bible College, and he's been in Three Hills for about 10 years. And I know him because I know his lovely wife, Liz. Liz, just wave to everybody so we know who you are. I work with Liz at, in the kindergarten classroom, and she's one of our EAs, and she's just fabulous. I can't speak very any highly. She's just wonderful. Um, Gord is uh, um, the head of the, or the lead of the Prairie Prison Program. Uh, that's at Prairie Bible College in Three Hills. And I'll ask him to come up now. We'll pray, and uh, we'll hear what he has to say to us. Lord, thank you so much for Gord, for his willingness to say yes and to um, bring your word and to bring a message. I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us directly, and I pray that you will bless Gord and his wife, Liz. Um, thank you so much for him and his willingness to be here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, and I'd also like to say that Gord and Liz are not only parents to four children and seven grandchildren, but they have a great-grandchild. So, there you go. Well, oh, you don't need that. Welcome. Hard, hard to believe, right? I look so young. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Rachel called Liz yesterday, um, and I didn't say right away I'd do it. <laughs> I t it took me about an hour, I think, because uh, I had to get out of I, well, not get out of. I had to ask to be excused from my commitment at the church I go to in Three Hills. Um, but I am happy for the opportunity to do this. Uh, the last time I was uh, speaking somewhere, um, it was out of town. And uh, the, the lady who booked me, she sent me a, uh, a link um, on Google Maps, I guess it was. And the place I was speaking was on one side of a lake, and Google Maps took me to the wrong side of the lake. <laughs> and and by as the crow flies, I was probably a two-minute drive, but to go around the lake was 20 minutes. And uh, I walked into the auditorium, and somebody was at the front going, I'm not sure where our speaker is today. <laughs> so I had to, to, you know, here I am. <laughs> And uh, so I, I went up, and uh, I didn't have any chance for the fancy slides that you saw. So I, I feel a little bit more comfortable, even though I'm doing this on short notice. So, um, and it, um, you can see what I do today by that slide. But nearly 20 years ago, I was doing something completely different. Um, and uh, my career trajectory was headed in the right direction uh, I was working in BC for a multinational corporation, and uh, I was climbing the corporate ladder, so to speak. And uh, I'd been appointed to positions of leadership, not just in work, but in many areas of my life. I was on church boards, and I was on district boards, and uh, at work I gave leadership to several national uh, and provincial trade associations. So things were going pretty well, and in 2003, I was offered a, a major promotion, uh, and I accepted uh, a regional vice president position uh, in Calgary, where I'd be in charge of 
most of Western Canada for this major corporation. And it was a big company. It was listed on the New York Stock Exchange, had sales of over $3 billion annually in revenue. And um, in Alberta, my success continued. And uh, the company that I was part of was number one in its field in the world, and they bought number two. So my territory doubled. And uh, before long, I had nearly 400 people that worked under me. And my area was generating about $30 million in uh, annual revenue, or annual revenue for the company. So, um, so I'd arrived. And uh, as I'm talking to you now, I realize I've missed about a major portion of how I was going to start. So hold that thought, okay? And uh, just give me the next slide. Is it Tyson? I got it right. Yeah. So, so these are actually two of our students. This is what I do now. And uh, just keep on going through those, Tyson. I think there's three lines there and just hit it three times for me. Um, not going to happen. No? Next slide then. So if you look on Prairie's website, this is something called the Encounter Program. And I realize you can't see all of that stuff, but what it says is there's, there's 10 courses that are part of a, a program. And uh, the program's called the Encounter Program. Uh, give me the next slide, Tyson, if you can do that. We actually were approached uh, to go and teach that program in prison. So we started doing that in 2016, and uh, we began almost, almost six years ago from right now. And uh, we started in Bowdoin, which is about an hour to the west. And then uh, two years after that, Drumheller approached us. And uh, you know where Drumheller is. And then in 2019, just before the pandemic happened, we went into Edmonton Institution, which is a supermax institution. And uh, I could tell you stories all day about that place, but that's not why I'm here. Um, and then um, even during the pandemic, we, we managed to, to grow. And I don't know how that's possible because the guys were locked down. And uh, there, there is only actually one explanation, and I think you know what it might be. Uh, but at the present time, uh, well, over that last six years, we've had up to 70 students taking courses in this program. And we actually had our first ever graduating cohort last year. We actually celebrated these guys at our last grad in April of this year. And I have a little clip. Is that going to work, guys, do you think? Um, it's just a minute long, but it's cool. And I thought you'd like to... There's three guys back there trying to figure this out. <laughs> Do I have to come back there and teach you? <laughs> Good time for a drink. It's okay, guys. We can do without it. 
in a bit. Lunch is in an hour. I'll set this up then in the meantime. We celebrated um, our first ever graduating cohort uh, at Prairie's graduation ceremonies in April. And um, we had arranged for the guys in prison to watch by um, like a Zoom type of a call. And we even tested it with the people in Bowdoin. And they... they uh, we did this test run two days before the grad, and then the day before the grad, somebody in the regional headquarters of uh, Corrections Canada found out what we were doing and started asking all kinds of questions about what was happening, and they, they kiboshed it. So the guys that had graduated couldn't even watch their own graduation ceremony. And we still can't get back into Bowdoin face-to-face because of the, the pandemic restrictions. Even though it's pretty much over, they still won't let us back in. But there was one guy, one guy who was released two weeks before um, the grad ceremony. And he was able to be there. And uh, he walked the stage with the other 100 graduates. And uh, it was just amazing. And that guy has now converted from a prison, part of the prison encounter program to the degree program called intercultural studies. And he wants to um, be a cross-cultural worker um, when he gets his degree in three more years. So that's, I'd call that fruit, even though you can't see it. (laughs) It's okay, guys. Let's just move on to the next slide, okay? I know, I know being men, you're being goal-oriented here, but really, it's okay. Um, so, so this program, uh, Prairie has something called an inmate scholarship fund, and um, our donors donate money, and we have many corporate donors. We have, we have donors that, that donate tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to, uh, to this so that inmates don't have to pay a dime. They don't even have to pay for their highlighters. They don't have to pay for their paper. They don't have to pay for their textbooks. And they, they are basically inmates who are on a scholarship with Prairie College. And um, the question, like when I talk like this and I give a presentation of my program, the question comes up all the time, and that's on the next slide. How did you get into prison? How did you get into the prison program? And now we can go back to where I left you. <laughs> uh, and the, when I went back into this, I was telling you that I was doing really well. I, I had arrived, and I was living the good life, so to speak. And the next slide gives you a bit of an indication of that. Um, Tyson. There you go. That's actually one of the cars that I had at the time. This one, uh, it's a 65 Triumph. And I used to, a couple of times I rented it out to movie companies who'd come and trailer it. And uh, they would use it when they were doing films that were being 
set in the 60s. So um, that is actually my car, was my car. Um, and I had signs or things like this that if you were looking at my life but not knowing me, you'd think I was doing pretty well. But looks can be deceiving. Secretly, I was out of control. And for reasons that are really too complicated to go into here, um, I began to spend money. And I bought stuff. I bought lots of stuff. I, at one, I had eventually had three cars like that. And uh, even though I was making an executive salary, my finances were quickly outdistanced by my spending habits. Um, something that I say quite frequently in these talks is that I was buying things I didn't need with money that I didn't have. And disturbingly, my purchases were often made in secret, uh, and I had to smuggle things into the house. I mean, obviously, I couldn't smuggle a car like that into the garage, but I had an expensive wardrobe, and I'd wait. I'd keep things at my office until I knew nobody was home and I could put them into my closet. And I, I'm a musician, and I had a really expensive guitar collection at the time. And a lot of the stuff I kept in the cases because nobody knew what was in the cases. Um, so I clearly had a problem. And what I should have done was humbled myself and... Uh, owned up to the situation and got some help. But I was afraid. And I stubbornly kept the financial picture hidden from my wife and uh, my rest, the rest of my family. And up until that point, there's no law against being stupid. Um, and I hadn't broken the law. But uh, that was about to change. And... Uh, I kept on getting these these bills that I couldn't afford. Um, I couldn't even afford the minimum payments on my credit cards because I had uh, I used up the cash I had and then I used up the equity I had and then I used up all of the credit limits on the credit cards that I had. So I would get these credit card bills once a month and you know I used I used to take a cash advance from one credit card and pay the minimum payment on the other credit card, but when they're all full, you can't do that. So I was faced with a decision one, at one point. Um, see, I'd been entrusted with a pretty large signing authority because of my position in the company. And uh, still unwilling and, and too afraid to own up to the situation and get help, I made the foolish decision to help myself to some of the company's money. And uh, I set up a false company, like a shell company, and uh, I made up invoices for this company, and uh, I set up a post a postal address for it, and and uh, bank accounts for it, uh, which in itself is completely fraudulent. But then I started to invoice my company for work that didn't actually happen, and uh, these invoices would find their way through the electronic accounts payable system, and then they'd land up in my computer. I'd approve them. And two weeks later, I'd have a check. So that was pretty slick. And uh, at first, the first time this happened, I thought, okay, I'm going to get help. I'm going to do this, and it'll buy me some time, and I'll strategize a way to tell my wife what I've done and what the situation is. 
That never happened. Um, The court records later showed that I did that 52 separate times. And before long, I was into the company for several hundred thousand dollars. And being raised in a Christian home, in a good family, I really, I knew it was wrong. And I found myself not sleeping at night. I was living a double life. And that's a fairly difficult position to be in if you want to sleep all night. Um, so I did something. I decided that it was completely unsustainable to, to keep doing what I was doing and something had to change. So I drove to Vancouver and I had a, comp- a meeting with the president and I quit. I didn't own up to anything. I just quit. And uh, so in, that was the spring of 2009. And I set up my own um, freelance project management company and I started to take on contracts and this is one of them that's the core shopping center downtown and uh, you'll see all the like the limestone it's it's like miles and miles of limestone i did the i did i supervised the job for the installation of all the granite and limestone and it was a two-year project it was about 10 million dollars and before long i was doing better than i was with the company and i thought okay Um, God is blessing me because I walked away from the illegal activity. But that was a deceived thought because I hadn't owned owned up to anything. Um, Yeah, I'd stopped the illegal behavior, but it was kind of like I got got away with one. Well, got away with 52, actually. But... um, That deluded thought was blasted out of my head one morning. Um, I I was still making massive payments to carry the debt, but this time I could afford it, uh, so to speak. But my wife still knew nothing of what was our real financial situation. So ceasing the illegal activity was was only part of the solution. A year after I left the corporation... Um, two Calgary police detectives showed up at my door. And evidently the corporation had done an audit upon my departure and uh, their investigation led to a police complaint. So my wife answered the door that day because I'd already gone to a site meeting. And uh, Tyson, if you want to just... I saw... The police left my wife a phone number, and I called them, and they said, yeah, we'd just like you to come down, and we have a few questions. (laughs) That sounded fairly innocent, so I thought, oh, maybe this isn't what I think it is. So I drove here, police station on 14th, and uh, got out of my truck, and I walked in, and uh, when the constable came out that had come to my door, uh, he asked me for my ID, and as soon as he knew I was... Gord Allard, he said, you're under arrest. And uh, that, was, that was pretty, yeah, my heart just fell into my shoes. And he took me into this little interrogation room, kind of like the ones you see on, on TV shows, cinder block with this table and two chairs. And on the table, there's this binder, and it was the thickest one you can buy at Staples. I think it was six inches and in it were 1,100 pages of supporting documentation of every transaction that I'd ever concocted with the corporation. 
So I knew I was screwed. <laughs> and um, I was charged with uh, fraud that day. And uh, it wasn't just, okay, you're charged, you can go. There's this whole process you go through, and it takes a very long time. And uh, I, I just sat in that room till at least noon, and then they took me to a different place where I was going to be fingerprinted and, and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, before long, it was like 3 o'clock, and I hadn't said anything to my, my wife. And, and I usually kept in, kept in communication with my wife, so it would have been really unusual for me to not talk to her during the day. So she'd started to worry. Um, so I managed to uh, get a hold of, a, a, like one of the policemen let me make a phone call. And uh, I phoned, and uh, I, did, I still didn't tell her where I was. I said that I was in a contentious meeting. <laughs> and in my way of twisting the truth, I, I was in a contentious meeting. But um, you get that that was, still wasn't the truth. Um, I thought I'd be released on bail by dinner and I'd be able to give my wife the terrible news face to face. So I just bought a little more time and of course dinner came and I was still sitting in that facility. And uh, they um, did me did my fingerprints and they put me in this large room and it was probably maybe 15 by 15, and it was cement, and there was benches around the outside, and there was at least a dozen other guys in there from all walks of life, but I was the only guy wearing nice pants and a shirt. (laughs) Um, There were some guys there that were in, in detox, for sure, and some guys that were still completely stoned, and uh, some guys were obviously not in a good place mentally. And I was sitting there surrounded by all of this pandemonium, and the thoughts going through my mind were, what am I going to tell my family? And then from what am I going to tell my family, it went to, I'm in trouble. I I probably don't have a family. Um, And I started to think, I do have money. I have money in the bank. Um, I could go to Mexico. And I started thinking about some friends telling me how far 20 grand goes in Mexico. And I'm thinking, I might be okay there for a little while. And uh, thoughts like that were coming to, to my mind. And uh, it got to be like 11 o'clock at night. And my family still hadn't heard from me. And we had actually a Bible study meeting in our home that night. And so all of these people came over and uh, they started praying about where I was. And they were calling hospitals and they were calling, um, you know, lots of places. But my daughter, who um, is a very bright girl, she actually figured out where I was. And unbeknownst to me, they came looking for me. So at about 11 o'clock at night... Um, somebody came, like a, a policeman came, uh, and he said, you, you can go now. You, you, your bail's been approved, and, and you can go. 
So I went and they gave me back my belt and my shoelaces and all the stuff they take away from you when you go to a place like that so you don't hang yourself. And uh, they gave that all back to me and I put my cell phone back on my belt and I went to the cashier because I thought I had to pay for my bail. And uh, the guy at the cashier desk looked at me like I had two heads and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I gotta pay my bail. I had my wallet out. He said, your bail's already been paid. And I, I couldn't understand that because as far as I knew, nobody knew where I was. So I, be, kind of bewildered, I put my wallet back in my pocket and I walked out down to where the exit was. And this isn't a place that says police processing headquarters on the front. It's a nondescript building downtown Calgary. And you go in the back door off a parking lot and there is no public entrance because it's just for police use. But I went out this exit, and there standing there are my wife and my daughter. And um, it was a moment of reckoning for me, because I had to figure out what to say. And I didn't know how much they knew, but right there and then, uh, on the sidewalk outside that building, I, I blurted out everything. I told them, told them about the debt and I told them about the stealing, and I told them about everything, uh, just about everything that I could think of, and I held nothing back. And after a minute or two of purging like that, my wife and my daughter, they looked at each other, and my daughter said, you know what, Dad? We're going to have lots of time to talk about that. Let's just go home. A couple hours earlier, I wondered if I had a home to go to. But my daughter said, let's go home. And that sounded pretty good to me. So she drove me back to my truck, which was at that other police station I showed you a picture of. And um, I got out of her car and uh, my wife followed me, and I thought, okay, this will be the first time that I'll be alone with my wife since she's heard this terrible news, and we climbed into the cab of my truck, and um, I thought, okay, now I'm going to get how she really feels, a well-deserved kick in the butt, at least. Um, but that's not what happened. She just... I looked over at her and she said some words that I will never forget. She said, I love you. And I'm not going anywhere. And those were the most life-giving words that anybody had ever spoken to me. I've been telling my story publicly for eight years, and I can get through everything. The water isn't because I'm thirsty, it's so I don't break down and cry. Uh, because um, those words um, change, changed my trajectory. Uh, and I told you that I was on a trajectory before uh, in my career 
Well, that put me on a different trajectory, and I decided, okay, let's make this right, and I didn't know what that meant at the time. Um, When my actions came to light that day, um, I had a new confidence to own up to what I had done. I had made too many bad decisions to that point and not accepting my guilt would have been would have just perpetrate perpetuated my deception so I pled guilty to the charges and uh, I hired a lawyer but not to prove innocence because I was I pled guilty but the lawyer I paid the lawyer to try to keep me out of jail and there is something called a community sentence It's kind of like house arrest, like the Apostle Paul was in, except he was innocent. Um, But uh, that's what I thought sounded pretty good to me. Um, So during that 14 months that I was out in bail, my lawyer prepared a case to convince a judge that I wasn't a threat to society. Um, And uh, on uh, April 20th, 2011, we went here, and... uh, I I don't know if I wasted my money on the lawyer, but it didn't go my way. I got an 18-month jail sentence. And uh, that was shocking, but was e- what was even more shocking was, you know, they don't let you go home and pack a suitcase and a toothbrush and stuff. They take your right, you know, your sentence starts now. And so I got taken out of the courtroom, and I walked by section of family and friends that were sitting there to support me. My wife was right in the front, and I just had enough time to say, I love you. And I was taken to this room where they again took my belt and my phone and my shoes and stuff. And there's a there's a holding, the basement of the courthouse, that courthouse is a holding center full of cells. And you go down there and you wait until the, the court proceedings are finished for the day, and then they take you all to start your sentence. And before they decide what penitentiary or, or correction center you're going to go to, they take you to the remand center, which is a horrible place. And um, I got in this, uh, this van, which is essentially a cage on wheels with about five other guys, and uh, we went up to the remand center. And by the time... I got processed through the remand center and everything. It was probably 10 o'clock at night. And uh, I was thankful uh, that it was, you know, they were starting to dim the lights in there uh, because uh, it had been a very long day. And it was really the first time that I had gotten to um, be in any kind of solitude. I mean, it was anything but solace there, but at least... I was kind of, I was in a top bunk in this cell and uh, the cellmate had gone to to bed and I had some time alone with my thoughts. And uh, I remember thinking that this was probably the worst day of my life. I felt utterly alone and as I started thinking those thoughts, an overwhelming flood of emotion came over me and I just started to weep. And I did it as silently as I could. This wasn't the place to really show weakness, but I couldn't stop the tears that were coming. 
I'd spent over a year trying to avoid this day, and now in spite of the efforts of many, the worst had happened. And like I said, I was utterly alone. But in spite of that, it became clear to me that even in this situation, I had choices. I could be angry at God for not convincing the judge that I wasn't a threat to the community and for not keeping me out of jail, for separating me from my family and putting me in this awful place, or I could accept my consequences and continue to trust God for my well-being. And the latter sounded like probably the choice that I would be better off with because I still desperately trusted in God. So there in that 8 by 12 cell on the first day of my incarceration, which was two days before Good Friday, I had a transforming conversation with God. And um, I told him that I wouldn't blame him for my situation and that I'd accept my consequences as part of his just plan. And then I told him that I'd continue to serve him even in jail, and even if it meant that I, that I had to stay there for 18 months. And that was a turning point for me because uh, God did begin to use me. Um, after nearly three weeks in the remand center, I was transferred to the Lethbridge Correctional Center. And there I tried to show an interest in uh, the other men. Most of them were my kids' age. And... Uh, they responded. In prison, it's, it's a lot of uh, nicknames and aliases. And guys, there are guys that I never knew by their real name. Their names were Cowboy or Shooter or Rockstar or Slapshot, names like that. And they gave me a name too. My name was Dad. And that's not surprising because most of these guys didn't have one. So there I was. And prison is a noisy place. I've got a picture here of the actual unit that I started off in. And uh, you can see that there's no soft surfaces and noise just bounces around in there. And um, I knew that if I got out into that room before anybody else did in the morning, I'd have maybe 20 minutes before they started to bring the breakfast trays. So I did that. And I'd gotten the Bible sent to me, and I used to go out there and just read the Bible. And I started with Psalms. I went through the Psalms numerous times while I was there. And then the place would start to come to life after about 15 or 20 minutes. And... uh, You know, I'd be sitting there just wanting to read my Bible, and these guys would start coming up. What you reading, Dad? And I'm not going to say, go away. Um, So I I told them. And before breakfast came, lots of times I had guys sitting, filling all the chairs at my table. And I'm not a Bible scholar. I I had two years of of, uh, Christian liberal arts college, but... You know, I I am not going to be uh, doing exegesis on any book of the Bible. But I did, I tried to answer their questions, and I guess it was enough for them. Because um, I got approached by a couple of guys one day, a few months into my sentence, and they were 
doing an AA group right on the unit. And uh, if you know anything about AA, you know that there's 12 steps. And half of these steps have a reference to God. And these guys had no idea how to, how to reconcile those steps. But they knew that I read my Bible every morning, so to them that was an expert. So they asked me to come and talk to them in their AA group. And I've never had a problem with alcohol or drugs or anything like that, but here I was part of a prison AA group. And we started to meet, and uh, turned out that we started weekly. Uh, but these guys, before long, they pretty much abandoned the, the uh, AA curriculum, and they just wanted to talk about the Bible. And like I say, all I did was tell them Bible stories. And I told them about Jesus and the woman at the well, and I told them about Paul in prison and, and anything that I could think of. And they just sat and they, they just took it all in. And one day, I came in from working out in the grounds. I had a job there, and I came in at about 3.30. And uh, they said, hey, Dad, it's time for a Bible study. <laughs> but this time, they had an agenda. And... Uh, The agenda involved a, ki a, a really tall indigenous kid named Lenny. And Lenny was being released the next day. And they wanted to pray for Lenny. And, uh, of course. Um, and what I had never realized before is that men who are doing time are often filled with anxiety at the thought of being released. If you told me I was going home, I'd dance. I know this is a Baptist church, but I would dance. <laughs> and, uh, but lots of guys, they are filled with anxiety because they, they have broken families. They have nobody to go home to family-wise. They have no job. They have addictions that they will return to. And the rate of recidivism in Canadian prisons is much higher than they will admit. Um, it's somewhere between 60 and 80%, I'm convinced. Uh, so Lenny was uptight about going home. And we went out to, uh, you know, sit in a semicircle uh, just in the courtyard where we had our meetings. And uh, we had a regular meeting, and uh, that was the day I told them about David and Bathsheba. And that just blew their minds that a story like that was in the Bible. Uh, and then we turned to prayer. And uh, I thought, okay, this, I'm going to do the pastoral thing and I'm going to pray for Lenny. And, and before I even got a chance, when it got quiet, I heard Lenny take a deep breath. And it wasn't just any deep breath. He filled his lungs with every ounce of air that he could get. And I could hear it. It was almost like a gasp. And uh, Lenny started to pray. And I'd love to, to quote Lenny's prayer, but you would throw me out. Um, prison, in prison, they use um, 
profanity like, like we use punctuation, okay? And Lenny, when they talk about um, making a mistake or screwing up their life, the words that they use for that are quite profane and they begin with F, okay? And when they talk about the opposite sex or their women or their mothers, they habitually use the word that begins with B. So that was Lenny's language, pretty much. So Lenny started to pray. He took this deep, deep breath, and he started to pray. And I'll paraphrase, and you can figure out what he actually said. But he said, Oh, God. He let out that breath that he took in with a rush of air. And when he said, Oh, God, it got really, really still in that little group we were sitting in. And I actually felt the Holy Spirit just calming everything that was happening. And then he said, I'm going home tomorrow. I don't want to fight with my woman anymore. I've screwed up my life. Please help me. And that was Lenny's prayer. And I listened to it and I realized that Lenny had prayed one of the most authentic prayers I'd ever heard in my life, using the worst language I've ever heard in my life. But God didn't care because God was looking at Lenny's heart. And I don't know if I don't know where Lenny is. I tell the story a lot. I don't know where he is. And I don't know if I had more of an impact on Lenny or Lenny had more of an impact on me. Because it was experiences like that that answer that question. Why do you do this? How did you ever get into prison ministry? Because now I get to serve 70 Lennies every day. And I have experienced a, a new kind of trajectory, I guess you could say. Um, and uh, I have a... Is that scripture passage next? I won't read the whole thing, but about two-thirds of the way down, it says, I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I see fortune differently now. It isn't in Triumph automobiles or in fancy suits. It's in Lenny. I'm rich because of Lenny. And um, I have people say to me sometimes, aren't you glad God sent you to prison? (laughs) God didn't send me to prison. My bad choices sent me to prison. But we serve a God that can take those bad choices and actually turn them into something. And that is called redemption. I don't know where you are right now, 
in your life. But I want to I want to say to you that if you've got secrets, if you've got stuff that you've been struggling with, it must look pretty dark to you right now. But that's not the way God looks at it. God says, if you would just surrender that to me, I can use that. And that's what he does. I see fortune differently now. This is one of my biggest fortunes. Even the dogs. <laughs> so um, before I lose it completely, I just want to leave that with you. And um, thank you for calling me yesterday, Rachel. And I would just like to close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for never turning your back on us, even when we have turned our backs on you. I thank you that you are a God of redemption. I thank you for how creative you are and how you can do things that we we just don't see coming. And I pray for this body of believers here pray that you would heal their pastor. pray that you would lead them into, into amazing things together and uh, that you would show them your grace, your continued grace, your mercy, and the redemption and how you're going to use them. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.